Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is my friend, Dr. Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, one of the world's leading polling and public affairs firms, who is ideally placed to help us look ahead to what uh, might be some of the big issues uh, that the world and international community uh, will be facing in 2022. He also joins us on this, the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection with a poll Ipsos conducted in partnership with National Public Radio to gauge the American public's outlook on democracy as those at home and abroad worry that a nation that has long served as a global model for democracy and governmental checks and balances faces the methodical dismantlement of those very checks and balances and the democracy that they ensure. Daryl, Happy New Year, and thanks so very much for joining us today. My pleasure, Vago. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's always uh, always a pleasure. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Daryl, uh, it was terrific seeing you uh, live and in person uh, at the Halifax uh, International Security Forum. Uh, a high a high point. And I'm I'm sorry that we've gone a little bit retrograde. You're in sunny Toronto. Uh, and you guys are uh, getting getting back to uh, a little bit of a lockdown uh, situation. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about the American population's view of democracy in the year since January 6th, uh, because the findings are actually quite terrifying. Walk us through what this polling shows and what it is about the polling that particularly surprised you. Well, first, let's deal with the point of consensus that exists in the poll. So the poll that we did for NPR shows that 64% of the people that we interviewed believe that American democracy is in crisis. And 70% uh, also believe that America is in crisis. So uh, people do actually see that what's going on right now is being different from what existed before and would describe the current situation as being in crisis. But the point of consensus on this is Republicans, Democrats, and independents all believe th these, these two things. Now, where, the, uh, where it starts to fall apart after that is who's to blame, and particularly relative to what happened on January 6th a year ago, what that actually was and what it represented. And what are, from your standpoint, right, what's amazing about it is that Republicans are actually more worried about it, even though they're actually living in rather a disinformed and distorted view of what's actually happened, what happened on that day, and what the potential ramifications of it are. Yeah, even though there's a consensus as to the fact that these, uh, these existential threats exist, each side kind of blames the other. So uh, Republicans and Democrats can both believe that the situation is in crisis and independents as well could believe that America is in crisis. But the sources of that crisis, they believe are different. They can believe that democracy is somewhat imperiled. Uh, but uh, the reasons for that, they can be, quite, can be quite different. So, for example, on the issue of what happened on January 6th, there isn't even consensus on that. Uh, so, for example, we asked, uh, asked the people that we surveyed, uh, you know, how would you describe what happened on January the 6th? And 32% said there was an attempted coup, but 28% that it was just a riot that got out of control. In fact, 17% said that was actually Trump's opponents the cause what happened 
on uh, on uh, on January the sixth. So there really isn't even consensus among the American public as to what all of that was about. Now we did another poll for ABC News that came out about the same time as this poll for NPR, and um, people, even though they disagree on exactly what happened on January sixth, they didn't like it. So almost three quarters of Americans, seventy two percent believe that what happened on January 6th uh, represented, 72% believe that it uh, posed a threat to democracy. And interestingly enough, 58% also believe that Donald Trump bears some responsibility. And that includes up to 20% of Republicans. So Republicans aren't even united on the question of, uh, you know, what exactly happened and what role uh, uh, Mr. Trump happened, happened to represent on that day. There's a, you know, one fifth of Republicans believe that he's to blame for what happened. And obviously, this comes, uh, you and I are talking uh, just after President Biden made uh, his address in which he laid blame uh, squarely on the former president, uh, in, including not just inciting uh, uh, the peaceful transfer of power, but but also doing nothing uh, to, to try to stop it. Um, you are in the business of both gauging and shaping public opinion. Are, are you surprised at the extent to which misinformation and disinformation are shaping people's perceptions of what should be a pretty cut and dried answer to what it is that actually happened, given that so many of the people who are actually involved and threatened and condemned the event on the day it happened, in short order, have turned around and sort of said, like, well, nothing to, to see here, right? Has that surprised you at all? Um, there's a surprise a day, Vago. <laughs> Uh, you know, we, li we live in these unprecedented times in so many different ways. So anybody who would say that they weren't surprised by what happened and aren't being surprised by what's happened every day, um, I, I would suggest uh, has lost their ability to be surprised. Um, uh, uh, we're really in, in uh, uh, times that we haven't really seen anything like that this since probably the late 1960s in the United States. I mean, you know, there are there. We, we did go through Watergate too. I mean, there, there. It's not like they're exactly uh, situations aren't, uh, are, you know, are are completely without precedent. But but the situation in the modern era, uh, uh, this this most modern era is is not one that we've seen before. Uh, but the the level of uh, disinformation that's out there, um, there's always been disinformation. The difference that uh, I think we see in the world of disinformation these days is the ease to which people can access uh, disinformation and the ease to which uh, uh, misinformation can be distributed. Uh, and that's basically the product of technology and in particular social media. So what's happened is that the environment in which this information uh, uh, um, uh, get, finds its way into becomes a much more universal type of an environment uh, and, and, and an accelerated type of an environment in which this information can get to more people uh, quickly than anything that we've ever seen before. The other uh, thing that we're dealing with is that there, there's been a breakdown. And, and basically what's happening in the United States is not, it may be more extreme in terms of some of the things that have happened, but it's not that different from what we're seeing in, in, a, in a number of other places, uh, particularly in places like Western Europe, where we're seeing the, the decline of the governing middle, you know, that, that, that large consensus block of thinking that used to govern most, country, most countries. You know, it was kind of, uh, you know, moderate left and moderate right, and they, they tended to find a way to get along. And what's happening is we're seeing that part of the consensus, um, uh, uh, the governing process, 
break down and, and the extremes uh, develop uh, more of an importance in terms of the decision making and, and in particularly in terms of the dialogue that has to that takes place. You know, in this very, very cluttered world of information, these very emotional, um, uh, very hot types of political issues that tend to, to uh, and types of communications that tend to uh, be the stock and trade of people who sit in the extremes seem to have more impact out there with the public. But there's no doubt that it's the technology environment that's, that's made it uh, more accessible for people and has made the message accelerate um, and, 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 and uh, get out there into the public sphere at a degree that we've never really seen before. Um, but one of the things that is also new is the extent to which political leaders will um, propagate some of this, right? I mean, so the former president has been removed from social media, and yet um, all of the mistruths that he uh, generated and his team generated, right, are now being disseminated by um, one of America's greatest political parties, right? So how do you, what does that tell us about our ability to counter uh, disinformation if people, you know, I mean, obviously uh, members of Congress uh, and senators want to preserve their jobs, right? And they know that uh, Trump can mobilize quite a lot of power against them and, and primary them or somehow hound them out of office. So they sort of go along with it. But what does this tell us about the future of democracy where one individual has so much sway over his party and that many of the messages that are being delivered are actually false. Well, and the, uh, the I mean, it's really two questions here. One of them is uh, the demagogue, but the second thing is the, the, the people who are receiving these messages. Uh, and that's the part that's the most surprising to me in all of this. I mean, I, in some ways we, we don't give Donald Trump enough credit and in some ways we give him too much credit. Um, I think a lot of what Trump operates on already existed out there. It, he, he found it. He discovered it. He didn't create it. But what he's developed a really um, a keen ability to do is to speak to it, to, to reflect it back, to present himself as the, uh, the avatar for people who have that particular point of view and to legitimate that point of view. That's what, that's what he's, he's, he's excelled at. He hasn't so much, I would say, created it. A lot of this was already there. He's given it a, a level of legitimacy that it never had before. Uh, you know, and by the way, not just him. I mean, a, a fair amount of the media activity these days, um, you know, particularly uh, you know places like Fox News, but not you know not exclusively, have have given a, a kind of a legitimacy, a, a patina of acceptability to all of this that it just didn't have before. I mean, it's one thing to be in the world of Alex Jones. I mean, that's not a, a kind of a mainstream perspective. I mean, it's the, the kind of thing that, you know, will attract a, a significant audience, but it's not a decisive audience. What's happened now is that these kinds of messages have found their way into more of a, an, an environment that looks more mainstream. Um, do, let me ask you this question, right? Um, uh, Republicans, uh, right, have created the, the fiction that the 2020 election was stolen and, you know, voter fraud was was rife, uh, in part because, you know, we allowed people, we made it easier for people to vote. And it's not abundantly clear that there was any more cheating. Uh, but the expansion of the franchise certainly was negative for some Republicans. Uh, there were a lot of reasons that was negative, by the way. People were frustrated with Trump, right? I mean, there were a lot of factors. We were in the middle of a pandemic. There were a lot of factors. Uh, to that. And right. So you would want to constrain 
voting in that case. But I think the thing that concerns people a little bit more is uh, to try to take uh, sort of objective or non-political offices, election officials and what have you, or election law, and then convolute the whole thing in order to be able to maintain power, right? So both of the sides are looking at it two different ways. For one, it's a constriction of the franchise. For others, oh my God, uh, bad outcomes are happening and we want to seal, seize the levers of power to keep those bad things from happening. Read, I want to maintain uh, uh, political power. Um, how, how do you get to a better middle with this when the two sides are looking at things in such a polarized, right? Because ultimately... It should be the vote, whoever wins the vote legitimately, right? And objectively, once upon a time, we looked at it and you said, Daryl, you ran a better campaign than I did. I had bad messages and that's it. You know, I shouldn't have said something stupid during the campaign and that would have been it. And then you and I go after it again in four years. I think the only way it, go, it goes away is when it doesn't work. <laughs> That's the reason that people are doing these things and saying the things that they do is because they work. But to be clear, I mean, 65% of the people that we interviewed in the, uh, in the NPR poll accept the election results. By the way, half of Republicans. Now, granted, half don't, but half of Republicans do. So it's not like all of the Republican Party completely rejects everything that had to do happen in the last election campaign that, or that all Americans or even half of Americans are saying that Joe Biden's uh, you know, presidency is illegitimate. That, that's not what the data show. Uh, but the, the, that group that represents the half of the Republican Party, which is not insignificant, that's a huge number of people, are the loudest. And they're getting an awful lot of attention. And, uh, you know, uh, there are we did test on the uh, on the NPR poll some ideas about um, uh Things like, for example, standardizing voting in the United States. About half the people we interviewed, the voting process and making it more, more national, but half the, the public supported that. But still, it's only half. Uh, so unless somebody takes on the process of, uh, uh, or the subject of electoral reform uh, in the United States in a way uh, in which the American population feels is going to be fair, um, and right now there's, there, there doesn't appear to be anybody that's doing that kind of thing, uh, it's it's going to these problems are going to continue right through the midterms and into the next presidential election. Uh, and I uh, appreciate uh, your your optimism for it, and and some of the information is very encouraging. But you know, as as you said, I was a little bit focused on the on the sheer number of people, uh, which is fairly large and again very loud and um, and very influential. Uh, who regard? But, but Fago, as, go um, back to go back to nineteen sixty eight. And what was happening right. in the United States back then? Go back to Watergate. Go back to, I don't know, there's been elections, even John Kennedy's election, and, and what happened around that. I mean, there's always been this thing. It's just, it's now so much more visible because the media is so, um, uh, is so ubiquitous. And, and, and by that, I'm including digital media, social media is so ubiquitous that right. there, it just seems like all of this stuff is more extreme. I'm not saying that it's, it's not. But I still have great faith in the American public and their institutions have been able to find a way over very, very difficult times to, 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 to bring Americans together and take it to uh, whatever the next version of the United States is going to be or America is going to be. And I, I do find um, a couple of things are somewhat irritating to me in all of this. 
One of them, and this includes in my country, sitting back and smugly trying to lecture Americans on how to run democracy and, and making the observations about how, you know, we people in places like Canada or people in Western Europe or whatever have lessons to give to the Americans on democracy. Yeah, maybe to a certain extent, but our countries all have their, all have their issues and problems too. And by the way, if the shoe was on right. the other foot, we wouldn't necessarily appreciate America telling us how to run our democracies. And we've certainly seen that uh, through, through the years. And the other one that, uh, that um, uh, drives me um, a little bit crazy because I am a student of history like you is comparisons to other things that happened in history that just aren't accurate. They're just, they're just not. I mean, for example, you know, comparing what's going on in the United States right now to what happened under, uh, you know, Weimar Germany is a complete misreading of what's going on in the United States based on a complete misunderstanding of what happened during the rise of, uh, of national socialism in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in Germany during that period of time. It's a much more complicated story that has a lot to do with the rise of international communism that isn't part of what's going on in the United States right now. The United States didn't lose the First World War. The United States isn't living under the Versailles Treaty. I mean, this is just people searching for a way to uh, uh, you know, explain what's going on by taking a, a square peg and trying to drive it into a round hole. Do I think authoritarianism is a potential problem in the United States? Absolutely, as it is in a number of countries around the world. And, you know, the United States could potentially be going through a transition. But the idea that, you know, we're on the, on the cusp of going through what uh, Weimar Germany went through and, uh, and eventually uh, Germany became in the 1930s um, is, is a really big overreach with that analogy. Um, I, I would uh, agree with you. And I think uh, there is a conflation, though, right? There is a sense of sort of uh, a, a uh, I think, fairly unprecedented ability of an individual to shape the entire political space the way that Donald Trump has done it and caused uh, about faces and political control um, that I think makes drives people to that comparison combined with the incendiary rhetoric and other other elements of it, although I take fully your point uh, that the broader circumstances are completely different. The, the concern obviously folks have is the mobilization of this sizable, uh, even if it's a minority, that is then starting to drive national policy that then codifies or makes it difficult for the other side to be able to actually electorally change that outcome, right? So uh, to your authoritarian point, that's the sort of the, the, the driver and the concern, right? Yeah, well, the, uh, the interesting, you know, the, the counterfactual or the, uh, the, the mind game that you can play with this is remove Donald Trump from the equation, remove him. So does the problem go away? Do the question. issues go away? And my answer to that is I don't think so. <laughs> I, think, I think that this is much bigger than one, one, one person. I think it has an awful lot to do with um, a lot of the things that we've been talking about. And by the way, we've focused exclusively on the right. The left has an awful lot to answer for, too, in all of this. The left has an awful lot to answer for, too. And the media outlets like you know, MSNBC or what CNN has become, or you, know, if you pick any of the uh, you know, sort of mainstream publications that have decided that they're going to be the opposite or take on uh, uh, or basically develop the position in which they're uh, going to be less about objective reporting, whatever that is, and more about taking a stand on various things. What, what, what's, what's, what's to come of the, you know, the average American? Who are they supposed to pick among all of this? 
And, and I think, you know, it's too easy to just simply sit back and say, this is all. And, about and what would one, you say, Raymond? Guy. There is a lot of. Uh, it's just like Nazi Germany right. being all about what, what happened in Nazi Germany being all about Adolf Hitler. I mean, it was certainly a big factor in it, but it wasn't exclusively about him. And would the same thing have happened around another um, political leader? Possibly. Um, let me let me just uh, briefly, and I want to get to the 2020 uh, pr uh, pr projections, but I want to uh, quickly ask you, right, in, in terms of the left, there is a lot of focus on what uh, the right is doing and the role of the right. And obviously that's accentuated in part because of Donald Trump's uh, role and, and rhetoric and, and what have you. But where do you think the, the left is erring and contributing badly to this from the standpoint of somebody who, you know, again, is a historian, but you're also looking at the numbers and the data? I, was, I would say that uh, not paying attention to what the issues are that are animating people on the other side of this agenda and treating them like uh, they're not... Um, legitimate discussion. Say, for example, I, I know one of the biggest drivers of what's going to happen in the midterm elections is going to be people's views of what's happening at the border, uh, especially the southern border, obviously. Okay, people have real concerns about that. The failure of what's happening in major cities in the United States when it comes to homelessness and crime, th those, are, those are really leg legitimate issues. Um, housing prices. Uh, really legitimate issues for people, um, you know, uh, and the culture wars. I mean, what's what's happened in terms of identity politics in the United States? There's a whole group of the population that's left out of that conversation. It doesn't feel like that, that, that and feels that it's being backed into a corner on every issue that has to deal with identity. You know, that's not helping either. So, you know, as I said, what's happened is there's these, these two extreme types of positions. And there's a whole bunch of people who are kind of lost in the middle that are trying to look for something that's reasonable and they're not finding it. And the reason is because, uh, you know, the people who are most reliable in terms of their political participation, whether it comes to everything from fundraising through to actually mobilizing votes tend to be the people who are on the extremes. And, and people have a tendency, right? Because now that they're picking and choosing their sources of information, do opt for truthiness, whether that truthiness is to the left of center or to the right of center. Yeah, and, and it's, it's sort of like Malcolm Gladwell's book, you know, Blinked, when he talked about, you know, people just know it. I, I look at it more as a smell. And when you're so overwhelmed with information, you tend to, you know, you tend to revert to another part of your brain, which relates to how you emotionally feel about what you're seeing or hearing, or how you see your place in whatever the discussion is about. It all becomes very personal. Every, all political issues start to become very personal and you start to evaluate where you sit in this. And if, whether you're on the right or the left, if you're alienating a significant group of the population by saying you're the bad guys, that's what makes it difficult. Because where do you go from there? There's nowhere to go from there. All you do is alienate them. And if they're better organized than you, they'll beat you. Uh, well, that uh, that that there goes uh, there goes your Canadian reserve again, <laughs> Daryl. It's like wow, that, that might feel good, but boy, is that going to be stupid? Uh, and 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 you'll have to pay a price for it. Um, let me uh, broaden the conversation because one of the reasons uh, that uh, you're on is also to talk to us a little bit about uh, what are going to be uh, sort of the the issues of 2022 as you see them, given how. Uh, uniquely positioned you are looking at actually global data 
uh, not just about security trends and economic trends, right, but social trends, uh, environmental trends, you name it, right? I mean, you guys are at the cross-section and intersection of, of all of those uh, in, in terms of what you guys do on the day job. What do you think are going to be some of the bigger factors of 2022, uh, including some of the things that are kind of surprising and that people may not be paying attention to, but should be paying a lot more attention to than they are now? Okay, so the, the big thing that's dominating the political agenda, again, is obviously the pandemic. So with Omicron, uh, the concern about the pandemic has gone back up. Until really uh, recently, it had been coming down. But even in this current situation, the level of emotion, like real fear, and very, um, uh, I would say, intense concern that we saw a year ago, we're not seeing right now. So uh, what, what that means is that there's space opening up for a discussion about other issues. And the thing that's interesting about the other issues is there really isn't a consensus. And just talking about this on a global level. So for example, if you live in a place like Argentina, your number one concern after the coronavirus is, um, is uh, crime or corruption. Brazil, similar kind of thing. Uh, if you're living in a place like Canada or maybe a place like Germany, climate change ranks a lot higher. Uh, and you can go around the world and you could pick out what the various issues are that are going to be on the what I would call the important agenda as opposed to the urgent agenda. So those other issues that are going to uh, start to rise following COVID. And the interesting thing when you take a look at the data is how diverse it is by country. And so what this leads me to believe is that what you're going to start seeing is less of a conversation about things that are global and more of a conversation about things that are local. And that includes the political circumstances, the economic circumstances, and everything from, you know, the environmental situation through to, uh, you know, the functioning of the healthcare system. Things are going to start as we go through the course of this year to be more focused on what's happening at the local level. So I think that's one of the first big things that we're going to see. I think obviously uh, every, just about everywhere, I think uh, uh, you're going to see some version of cost of living or inflation becoming an issue. And by the way, that what real people call inflation is cost of living. Uh, we're going to start, uh, there's going to be more of a discussion, I think, about what the rules are going to be for um, uh, how we're going to come out of, the, uh, uh, out of the pandemic in terms of work. And there's going to be some discussion about uh, what um, uh, 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 hybrid models are going to look like, what other types of environments are going to look like for people who are going to be working. So there's going to be, I, I would say, a fair amount of conversation about what the future of the world of work is going to look like. And the big sleeper issue, and this is one, not just one for next year, but one for the next five to 10, is the single biggest issue that I'm clocking right now uh, is one date. And that's 19, uh, 2030, which is the year in which every single baby boomer worldwide is going to be 65 years of age or older. So the massive rapid aging of the population that's going to be happening worldwide and the pressure that's, that's going to be putting on everything from consumer markets through to long-term care, uh, through to just about anything that has to do with government politics and the economy. Uh, it's, it's going to, we're going to go through a big transformation as a result of that. Uh, one final thing I will say, and you're even starting to see people like uh, the Pope talk about this, and you know it's one of my, my favorite topics, Vago, is uh, what's happened to fertility around the world and the collapse of global fertility, which has been accelerated by what we've gone through in the pandemic. In fact, the United States 
has recorded its lowest fertility rate in history in 2021. It's dropped down to 1.6 from, uh, it used to be well over, and, and even 20 years ago, it was, it was still uh, around replacement rate. It's now down to 1.6, which is going to further accelerate the, uh, uh, the effect of aging on the American population. Uh, so there's gonna be a lot of conversations they're going to start bubbling up after we get through this pandemic on all of those issues. But one to really watch that's going to be kind of an overarching issue is the one that has to do with aging. Uh, let me ask you about the national security implications of that aging population in 2030 and, and what that means from a security perspective, particularly, do you think? Well, there's, there's two points to this. One of them is the cost of elderly populations. So um, when, you, uh, when a population ages, they become an expensive population, uh, mainly related to retirement, the cost of retirement, but also the cost of healthcare. So there's going to be pressure on defense spending to be pushed into these areas uh, because there's no, there's no pension system in the world that's set up to deal with the extreme level of, uh, of um, uh, the size of the aging population that we're going to have. So uh, as we move forward in the 2020s, uh, there's going to be pressure on defense spending to be displaced by, um, uh, by uh, uh, trying to pay for some of these other programs. But the other thing is that um, the geopolitical uh, hotspots could change. The, if the United States is going to go through a, a, a situation in which its population is going to be aging as we go through the 2030s, the population that's most important in the geopolitical, two populations that are most important in terms of the geopolitical situation are obviously the Chinese population and the Russian population. So in Russia, Vladimir Putin last year basically said that um, uh, there's a million more Russians dying every year than are being born now. So they're a rapidly aging population. And China is about to, if it hasn't already, tipped into population decline. And the, uh, um, the I would say, moderate levels of uh, estimates for what the size of the population decline is going to be in, in China over the space of this century are that they're going to lose probably about half their population. But not only are they going to lose it, what remains is going to be much older. So uh, how do you create an army? How do you create a, a military out of that, that population? But also, how do you pay? for a superpower type military when you've got to take care of a population that looks like this. There's only one region in the world that actually has um, a, a, a replacing population and a really young population, and that happens to be Africa. And we do know that the, the places in the world that tend to be the most geopolitically difficult, the most subject to uh, situations that might involve the military, whether they're civil insurrection or whether they're wars with neighbors, tend to be populations that are younger. So Africa is gonna become even more of, I would say, a geopolitical hotspot over the space of this, um, over the space of uh, um, the next 30 years, mainly because of the demographic realities of what's going on in the world. Daryl, uh, it is always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for taking time to uh, join us. Uh, absolutely fascinating and already looking forward to having you join us again uh, very, very soon. Thanks so very much and hope you and yours uh, stay safe and sound up there in Canada. Same to you, Vago, and thanks, uh, thanks to everybody uh, who, who's listening in today. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. 
we've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.